Well, good morning. Good to see you all. If you're joining us online, good morning to you as well. We're glad you're here with us. Um, if you had a Bible, open it up to John 21. Um, we will get there in a few minutes. Um, but I wanted to let you know ahead of time so you can find it. This morning, we're continuing to take some time as a church to vision cast a little bit, uh, to remind ourselves of... Uh, who we are as a church and where our convictions lie. And particularly this morning, we're talking about disciple making. In the church today, the topic of discipleship or disciple making is a little bit difficult to come to a consensus on. Uh, what is it? The definition of it. If you were to walk into 50 different churches across the country today, I think you would find a variety of experiences. One, you might not even uh, notice that they highlight the conversation of discipleship. Um, or if they do, you're going to get a different definition of what is discipleship at virtually every one of those churches. Um, there'll be some similarities, but every church defines it a little bit uniquely. Um, and so I, this morning, it's really important for us to take some time to talk about what do we believe uh, discipleship is and where do those convictions come from? And so uh, this morning, I want to take the time to try to bring some clarity to defining that for us as a church. Uh, and then I also want to take a look at Jesus and his relationship with Peter and what we can learn about discipleship from the two of them. So for us at, at LCF, our definition of discipleship is this. Devoted followers of Jesus make disciples. Through the context of intentional relationship, allowing the gospel to impact their own lives in such a way that faith in Jesus is multiplied in the lives of others around them. There is a scriptural conviction that we see from the life of Jesus in the Apostle Paul, particularly that is important to us, but there's also an intentionality in the relationships. Um, and those two things, the scriptural conviction and the intentionality in relationships are at the core of how we define discipleship here. We don't see discipleship as something at LCF that we're going to create a program for that you can just sign up for and be a part of. Um, we truly want to call people into creating a culture here, uh, call people into realigning the important things in their lives uh, to change their lifestyle to mirror that what we see as the biblical precedent from Jesus. We as a church are committed to investing in creating this culture so much so that it just is infused into our DNA. That if you are new to this church, you walk in and you recognize immediately that discipleship is a big deal to this church. A couple of key texts that we draw this definition from. Uh, first is from Jesus and his direct words, and then the, secondly, it's from Paul and his influence on the church as well. The first, in, in Jesus' words directly, uh, it's his direct instructions that we receive at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's account of the life of Jesus finishes with what we most commonly call the Great Commission, um, after his resurrection, he gathers his disciples in Galilee on a mountain that he had instructed them to meet him at. And in Matthew 28, 
verses 18 through 20, we see this. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel just concludes here. Matthew doesn't feel it's important to articulate anything else about what happens in the life of Jesus. It is simply stated that he, Jesus gives this command and the disciples know and understand what's expected of them and they go. I think the most important thing to hear or note in this Matthew 28 text and it's important, and it's vitally important to our definition as a church, this is a command from Jesus. This is not a, a suggestion that Jesus comes to him and says, I mean, I really hope you guys do this when I'm gone. No, it's a command. Jesus expects his followers to obey and be true disciples who speak the good news of the gospel to others. The other text that influences our definition of disciple-making come from the Apostle Paul. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, simply says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then even more strategically, Paul, to his beloved disciple Timothy, he gives Timothy kind of a strategic plan of how to do this. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Let's play a really quick game here, okay? I'm going to give you two options. You get to choose one or the other. I will give you a million dollars right now. That's option one. Or option two is I'll give you a penny that doubles every day for a month. Who wants to take option one? Who wants a cool million dollars right now? Okay? Got some smart people in here. Who wants option two? All right. So for those of you, Dave Ramsey would be proud. Um, option two, if you choose to take a penny that doubles every day, on day 25, you're sitting at about $167,000. And you're sweating a little bit. Did I make the wrong decision? Five, six days left. But on day 27, that's now $668,000. And on day 31... A penny that doubles every day is $10,700,000. And this is an incredible picture of the power of discipleship and the strategy that Paul lays out for Timothy here. It's a picture of the exponential growth that is available within a church body for us to spend time with one person who in in an undetermined amount of time turns around and does that with another that one penny turns into two, and two turns into four, and four turns into eight, and eight turns into 16, is an incredible picture of how the discipleship plan that Paul lays out for Timothy can impact the world for the kingdom. Paul shows us this in that text. There's a chart here that he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men. So Paul does that first with Timothy. He entrusts that to Timothy, and then he calls Timothy to entrust it to other faithful men, and for those other faithful men to do it with others also. 
what happens in the life of a discipleship relationship in that dash or that line is incredibly important. Paul says, what you've heard from me and trust it, teach them, impart to them, to faithful men. And here's the key. There's an end in mind when he talks about this because he says, but then they need to do it with somebody else. Consider just for a moment if the church, if we, just, just, uh, just LCF, if we took this command to make disciples to heart and truly just entrusted what we know of God and what he reveals about himself in the word and intentionally invested that in one person and how that could grow the movement of God, if we would take this to heart, would be incredible. This morning, uh, I want to step back and I want to look at the life of Jesus and his interactions with Peter. And I want to look at their relationship specifically in John 21. I think there's a lot that we can learn about discipleship from their relationship. Uh, John 21 is, is a great story. Uh, it's a great picture of what it is to follow Christ. But John 21, on a personal level, has a ton of significance to me. Um, it was literally about a year ago, this time, this week, uh, that Kelsey and I were flying home from two weeks in Israel. Uh, we had an absolutely incredible experience walking throughout all of Israel, seeing the places that Jesus um, spoke and did these incredible miracles and just to be there was an unbelievable experience. Um, to climb Mount Carmel and stand in the place where Elijah called down fire from heaven. To literally stand at the western wall and touch the base of what was the temple. To stand on the temple mount where the temple once stood. To walk the road that Jesus would have walked with his cross to his crucifixion, to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of these were incredible experiences. But the one that meant the most to me um, is where the Lord met me. And it was at the Sea of Galilee, uh, just outside of Capernaum, where John 21 took place. And I want to draw out, out of John 21 some implications of discipleship, the relationship that Jesus and Peter had together. So in order for us to see this, I want to take a real quick trip down memory lane, three and a half years that, since Jesus called Peter to follow him, and all of the experiences that Peter had following Jesus. If you think about it for just a moment, Peter witnessed an incredible amount of miracles. You know, even at his calling, he, he watched Jesus catch an incredible number of fish after toiling all night long. He would have witnessed Jesus turn water into wine. He, would have, he was there to watch Jesus multiply the, 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 the loaves and the fishes to feed 5,000 people. I mean, he walked on water. Okay, like, think about that for a second. That was Peter's experience. Stepped out on liquid, and it was solid ground for a momentary period of time. Peter witnesses Jesus perform healings. The healing of lepers, the providing of sight to those who were blind, the ability to walk for those who were lame or paralyzed. 
you know, relationally, Peter is one of the three on Jesus' inner circle, and he has this intimate relationship with the Lord, and we see that throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels. You know, in one moment, when many of the followers that were following Jesus turned away and no longer wanted to follow him in John 6, Peter's the one who speaks up and says, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. He is proclaiming that he's the Messiah. Jesus intentionally takes Peter to Caesarea Philippi, which, long story short, it is a grotesque place of sin. There are pagan worship. There are temples to pagan, worship, uh, to, to pagan gods that are being worshipped there. And Jesus takes Peter there and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ. And catch this. In that place of grotesque sin, Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock, upon Peter, I will build this church. And as their relationship, as, a, as their relationship goes on, and Jesus comes to a time where he needs to turn his sight to the crucifixion, he begins to tell his disciples that he needs to head to Jerusalem to suffer the many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and raised in the third day. And it's Peter who actually rebukes Jesus. He says, may God have mercy on you, Lord. May, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are the hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. I share this because I want you to know how intimate their relationship was. Okay, I don't know about you, but if somebody called me Satan, that would cut a little bit. A week later, Peter, James, and John are taken up on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah. Peter gets to see this. Can you imagine what it would be like to have all of those experiences? To truly experience Jesus in such a way that you know without a doubt he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Peter tells him that he's never going to deny him. But yet, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, Peter fails multiple times, and he fails miserably. It starts with Jesus taking him out to pray with him. And of course, Peter falls asleep three different times. And then when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus for the crucifixion in which he's, Jesus, Peter has been told multiple times, that is necessary. It's Peter who picks up a sword and starts wielding it around and ends up cutting off the soldier's ear, which Jesus heals. And then we get to the Peter's denial. Three times after his arrest, people in the crowd accuse him. This man knows Jesus. He's with him. And three times Jesus said, or Peter says, I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not very often that I think that we compare our lives to the experiences that Peter had, the amazing witnesses to miracles and healings, walking on water. But I do think we relate to Peter in his failures. Um, in the moments of his denial, we relate to him. We know what it's like to be filled with guilt. That feeling that I didn't live up to what I said I would do and that I failed. We know what it's like to be filled with shame. 
that we kind of walk through this life just hoping that we're not really found out. I believe Peter's life provides a great baseline for the need for discipleship. We simply can't walk through this life as faithful followers of Christ very well on our own. Regardless of our gifts, our abilities, our strengths, we're unable to do it apart from Jesus and his work. There's a a particular uh, scripture that shows up in Psalms and Proverbs. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, seems strange to us. We, We might kind of naturally say, oh yeah, it's fear, it's reverence, it's awe. It's not wrong. But I think John 21 gives us an incredible picture of what it truly means to fear the Lord and how it is the beginning of wisdom. After all that Peter has experienced in this life with God, walking on water, seeing the transfigured Christ in all of his glory, being told, hey, I have confidence in you upon this rock. I will build my church. Where is Peter in the moments of Jesus' arrest? He's fearing man. He's denying Jesus out of fear of what might happen to him. We don't know a lot about what happens to Peter in the moments after the arrest. We, there's just the simple statement that Jesus or Peter left and wept bitterly. But what we do know is after Mary discovers an empty tomb, it's Peter who runs to the tomb at the news that Jesus is no longer there. And Jesus appears to Peter on the road to Emmaus with other disciples and explains all these things to him. It says that Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And if it wasn't until after the blessing and breaking of bread with them that their eyes were open to who Jesus was, in, the moment, in that moment, he disappeared from their sight. No, no words for Peter, no apology, no, I, please forgive me, I'm sorry, nothing. As soon as he knows who it is, he's gone. And so Peter runs back to the 11 and tells them what just happened. And again, we see that suddenly Jesus appears. And the scripture says that Jesus opened their minds to the scriptures. And then the story just ends. We don't know if there was an apology, if there was an opportunity for forgiveness to be granted. The next time we see Peter is in John 21. And he's with the other apostles. They've left Jerusalem. They've gone back to Galilee. And let's pick up John 21, verses 1 through 8. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples. At the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got into the boat that night and caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, he called to them. Did you, you, didn't, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. 
the disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, uh, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard this, I'm able to read this since. Um, when Simon Peter heard it, it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him. And he threw himself into the sea. Since they were not very far off the land, about a hundred yards away, and the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. I'll tell you why this makes me so emotional in a few minutes, but I want you to, hear, I want you to see something here. Whether you became a Christian yesterday or whether you've been a Christian for 50 plus years, Peter reveals to us in this text what a proper response to a relationship with the Lord should look like. For discipleship to be effective in anyone's life, we need to see Peter's response as a beautiful representation of what it is to fear the Lord. Because you have to remember, Peter heard Jesus say the words in Matthew 10, anyone who denies me, I will deny before my Father in heaven. And at this point, after being in the presence of Jesus twice, not being able to speak a word, to say I'm sorry, to apologize, to seek forgiveness. Peter is ready to burst at the seams. Full of shame and guilt, all he can do is throw himself out of a boat. And you tell me if he fears the Lord. All he wanted to do is get to the Lord as fast as he possibly can. He couldn't stand to be away from the presence of the Lord for another moment. So he throws himself out of the boat and swims to shore. Have you ever been that desperate to get close to God? Do you feel the same way as Peter? It's not a matter of what you're facing in life or how busy you are. I want to encourage you that the proper response is to simply throw yourself out of the boat and get as close as possible to Christ today. Hunger for him above all else. The urgency that is on display here is what I think is the foundational necessity for us to be disciples. The type of urgency should be normative in this church. And I, I've asked myself this question, like, what, what does Peter know about Jesus that makes him respond this way? How come his shame and guilt don't get the better of him? How come he literally, as soon as he sees him, throws himself out of the boat? I think uh, Dane Ortland does a really good job of explaining this. I think he helps us understand what Peter might be saying. So Dane Ortland, I'm going to quote this. It says, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels. The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. If the actions of Jesus are reflective of who, the most, who he is most deeply, deeply is, 
we cannot avoid the conclusion that it's the very fallenness with which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. Peter has walked for three and a half years and experienced and seen Jesus show compassion to the isolated leper, to physically touch the man who no one else will come near and heal him. Moving towards the sinner, towards the outcast, towards the fallen and the helpless, I think what Peter knows is that what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of our sin, but whether the sinner actually comes to him. Peter, I think Peter knows this from the life that he's walked alongside Jesus, and all he is is so desperate to get near him. The first thing I want to encourage you to know is um, to know Jesus the way Peter knew Jesus. A Savior that moves towards our darkest sin. A fear of the Lord means that you simply want to draw near to a gentle and loving Savior. The second thing I want you to know is if you know this loving, compassionate Savior, please share him. Share him with anyone who will listen. From this moment on in Peter's life, he was not able to keep himself from proclaiming the word of God, the good news. He was not able to keep himself from discipleship. We ought to so desperately want others to know him and feel the security that we know. It is simply the greatest gift we can give anyone. For disciple-making to exist here as a culture of who we are, we need to have the same type of urgency to pursue the Lord that Peter displays for us here. And my prayer is that we would be a church filled with believers chomping at the bit to spend time with the lost, to spend time with younger, less mature believers, praying that we would be filled with eager people, mature, faithful followers of Christ that understand that I have a responsibility to share this good news. So Peter shows us the proper urgency to follow Christ. I want to keep going in this text. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. And so Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples as he was raised from the dead. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is discipleship can be simple. It can be as simple as come and have breakfast. I think in our minds, we immediately play these thoughts out of, I'm, I'm not ready to disciple someone. I don't know what to do. Um, I think we position ourselves commonly in the church today to say, man, Tim Fritzen's a really great teacher. I'm just going to invite someone to come to my church. 
or you know what, Libby Skillman and, and her staff and, the, and team in, in Kids Point are so good, I'm just going to make sure my kids go to Kids Point. What we see in the invitation that Jesus gives to come and have breakfast is a perfect example of simplicity for you and I to follow. You know, to say, hey, Josh, man, let's, what, I want, let's, let's go get some breakfast. Let's get coffee. I just want to hear what's going on in your life. And within that, we're going to open up the word and we're going to talk and just kind of see what God's teaching us. At, at LCF and within discipleship, we have kind of two rhythms that we encourage to exist within these relationships. The first rhythm is one that's scriptural, that your time together would be centered on the word, that you guys would discuss and learn together and grow together as you read the word of God together. And the second is relational. We know that Jesus, wherever two or three are gathered, he is there amongst us. And the way that we show care and compassion for others as we walk through life is an incredibly valuable tool to discipleship. When we commit to creating these rhythms, Jesus' love, his mercy, his compassion, they're free to work within our relationships when we commit to creating this type of space. You see, when we do that, the Holy Spirit uses us to meet another, to draw them closer. You see, that same restoration that Peter experiences is the same restoration that you can experience and the same restoration that God can use you to provide to someone else. Let's keep going. John 21, verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. And a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to them. He said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. And he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time. Jesus, do you love, and Jesus asked again, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response is, feed my sheep. Within discipleship relationships, shame has no place. Yes, Peter denies Jesus three times. And the Lord meets Peter in his shame. We see Peter give three confessions and we see Jesus give three gracious commissionings. As important as the commissioning is, I want to take a moment first to see that Jesus is removing the shame and guilt of Peter's denials, of his mistakes. We are sinful people. We will screw up. We make messes of things. And as Christians, we consistently fall. Our hope is that we fall towards Christ. But some of our lowest moments in life are the moments that Jesus works the most powerfully. Our shame is the very thing that he loves to work with the most. Jesus is not appalled by our shame. He's actually drawn to it. You think that the reason he is here, that he came... 
one of the greatest gifts of discipleship is that having a friend who's able to discern and identify the difference between the Savior's voice and the voice of shame. Satan loves to utilize shame to keep us paralyzed. Peter is an example of a man who loved God with all his heart, but he needed affirmation in that love before he could serve faithfully and fruitfully. We need disciple makers who will love and affirm others to serve the Great Commission faithfully and fruitfully. But I want to stop and say something here for a minute. Um, If you have been at LCF for a significant number of years, um, maybe you look around and and realize, maybe I'm one of the older people in the congregation, and you ask yourself the question, where do I fit here? I want you to know that we need you. We need your life experiences. We need the example of faithful commitment. One of the most valuable things you can do for LCF is to find someone and put your arm around them and walk through life with them. Maybe in COVID, it's like a virtual arm around them. I don't know. Um, I'll let you guys decide that. (laughs) But what you can bring in the, the years of experience, the years of the ways that you've seen the Lord be faithful in your life are an invaluable gift to people in this church. Kevin DeYoung, I think, says it best. One of the, one of the indispensable requirements for producing godly, mature Christians is that there are godly, mature Christians. And I believe there are here. The three callings on Peter's life fall into the three callings on our life. Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. But look at Jesus' response. He says, feed my lambs. Simply stated, then serve me. Shepherd my sheep. Or maybe your translation says, tend my sheep. Then simply stated, then care for my people. And finally, feed my sheep. Teach them to follow me. The fourth insight that we can draw from this relationship is that discipleship will not always be easy. In John 21, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says to Peter, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he said said this to indicate the kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he looked at Peter and said to him, follow me. Discipleship is not always easy. We will invest our time, our life into someone, and they'll hurt us. They'll disappoint us. They might even walk away from their faith. We see Jesus endure this multiple times. Matthew 8, the story of Jesus casting out the demons into the pigs. Strange story. But look at what the people do. He casts these demons out. The demons know and call him by name. Who, what do you want with us, son of God? He casts them out. They run off a cliff. The farmers, the shepherds, whatever they are that are there, they run into town and tell everybody. And in Matthew 8, 34, it says, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And you kind of think in your mind, oh, they're going to crown him king. He's going to be such, there's going to be this amazing moment. And then it says, when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. 
consider the text leading into the Great Commission. Right before Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountain, where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It's hard to watch people walk away from something that you so desperately long to see them understand and know. But I also want you to understand this. Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, you follow me. I'll take care of the rest. And it's not our responsibility to make someone believe that is only what Christ can do. What we're asked to do is to be faithful and obedient to the command, go and make disciples. Jesus is ultimately the one that's going to capture and draw someone's heart to him. John 21, verses 20 through 22, and this is, this is the final text. It says, So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, is it, who is the one that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus responded, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Look, Peter is still Peter. He's still got a foot-shaped mouth. After hearing the call to follow Jesus again, he looks around and sees John and says, well, what about that guy? It's almost like we should feel Jesus' sigh and shake of his head a little bit and kind of chuckle underneath his breath and, and give him the classic parent discipline conversation when, when he looks at Peter and says, Peter, you worry about you. I'll handle your brother. He looks at him and says, as for you, follow me. That is the command that we're given. It's on the same shore, shoreline, three and a half years earlier, Peter was invited to start this journey by following Jesus, by, by the question or the command, follow me. But this time as he receives that follow me, Peter fully knows Jesus and rightly fears him and has the right urgency within him to pursue the Lord. And what we see in the, in the beginning of Acts is at the Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit is poured out, it's Peter who gets up and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ and 3,000 followers accept Christ and we see the beginning of the church take off in Acts. Follow me is a command that Jesus gives every devoted follower of Christ. Peter has a task to serve, to care for, to teach, just as you and I do. As Jesus says, feed my sheep to Peter, we have the same. Every believer has been commissioned with the same call. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That is what we have been commissioned to do. And my prayer is that we have the same response as Matthew. There's nothing else left to be said. We just need to go do. So our commitment to you guys as a church, as we seek to create a culture of disciple makers here, we will do everything we can to help you to follow God's command, to encourage you to be a disciple maker. But I want to tell you this, we will not create a program. We're not just going to say, hey, sign up here and we'll, we'll play matchmaker. 
This needs to be a stirring of your heart and an urgency within you that you go to someone and say, hey, could we go have breakfast? Could we have coffee? Could we do this regularly? It needs to be born out of the urgency in your heart to follow the Lord. Now, we'll preach about discipleship. We'll encourage you. We'll call you to it. We will lovingly and frequently ask, who are you discipling? In the same way, we will lovingly and frequently ask, who's discipling you? And as a church, we commit to providing these opportunities to continually equip and train you so you feel confident in doing so. We'll do that through things like the discipleship training course, which we offer regularly. Our hope is that we'll be able to offer it this spring. This fall, we had actually hoped and planned to host a discipleship weekend. Um, There are, give or take, around 75 discipleship relationships that we know of as a pastoral team that already exist in this church. And what we wanted to do with the discipleship weekend was to call those discipleship relationships together and anyone else who's interested in being a part of it together to celebrate what the Lord has done, to continue to celebrate and be focused on what the Lord is doing and will do in the future of this church. Um, Our hope is to host that soon. We'll continue to offer resources on our website. Kurt mentioned last week on the discipleship page of our website, there are tons of resources that are downloadable for you to print and use how you see fit. I want to invite the worship team back up on stage here um, as we close in worship. I want you guys to take a little bit of time to pray. If you're not in a discipleship relationship, would you pray right now about who you could ask to disciple you? If you're not discipling someone right now, would you take some time to pray and reflect about who the Lord might have in your sphere of influence that you could put your arm around? The worship team is going to spend a little time and give us a little space to reflect and pray. And so let's go before the Lord and worship. Would you guys pray with me right now? Father, we are grateful. God, grateful for your compassion and love and grace that even in the midst of when we fail miserably, when we feel guilt, when we feel shame, you are the one that draws near to us. And God, I pray that we as a congregation would know and understand what it is to, f- to fear you rightly, Lord, that everything in our heart and mind longs to be as close as we possibly can to you. God, I pray for this church body. I pray for the believers here in this church body that we take seriously to heart and and are convicted that we ought to be making disciples. Lord, would you reveal to us who that might be, where to go, how to respond to uh, your word today. God, we're thankful for your gentleness and love and the way that you deal with us. Um, We praise you that we can fall forward to you as we fail. Lord, would you strengthen us today? Would you give us wisdom as we go? We love you, Father. Amen.